Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Before we get started this week, I just want to tell you about another podcast which I really, really enjoy. It's the Air Podcast hosted by Emma Robertson. They're running monthly and each time they have a really, really interesting guest from the world of music, mostly electronic music, but branching out a little bit further a field too. So Emma is a journalist who is really, really thoughtful and considered in the questions that she asks people. And as a result, the podcast is just consistently really good, basically. She's had some really great guests on, for example, Evelyn Glennie, the percussionist, which I just thought was an amazing booking for a podcast. And also people like Luke Slater and William Bozinski, which is another great one. I thought she tries to make the conversations deep and personal and avoid the things that they normally get asked by journalists, which if you're a regular listener to this podcast is a kind of a similar approach that I try and take here. So topics have ranged from classic music themes like synthesizers and live performances to more philosophical stuff like honesty and authenticity as a musician, staying present as a DJ and the emotional connection of music. So it's a really good show. Like I said, I listen to it a lot and I would recommend it. You can check it out at soundcloud.com slash airpodcast. One more notice before we get going to say that we have our first event in Berlin since 2019 on Friday the 2nd of September. So next week, DJs of the night are myself, Anna Cost, Apple Billim playing back to back with Roska for the first time, and also Closet Yi from South Korea making her debut in Berlin. You'd have noticed her Simmer EP recently on Hot Flush, which was awesome. So we're super excited 
to have her on the bill too. So that's at Aiden in Berlin. Full details via my website, scubaofficial.io or check resident advisor for tickets and all that kind of stuff. So on with the show, we are on Patreon. And if you're listening to this, it means you're not a patron, which is totally fine. And you don't have to be, I'm not judging you. But if you want to be a patron, then head over to patreon.com slash scuba official. There's a whole bunch of exclusive content up there, including last week, we posted a unreleased, never to be released SCB track. There is also a couple of DJ sets up there from me and an AMA podcast. So there's two tiers. First is the solidarity tier, which gets you this podcast without any ads and bonus podcasts. So the aforementioned DJ sets and AMA stuff, and there's going to be more stuff too. And the musicality tier, which is a bit more expensive, but gets you that exclusive unreleased music and gets you on the hot flush promo list for all of our labels. So it gets basically every bit of music that we release ahead of release date and in high quality download formats. So it's a pretty great thing to do, I think just generally. And also if you're enjoying the podcast, it has the added bonus of supporting us in what we do here. Basically, um, we're using the money from that to build the show. Essentially, it's not a kind of a profit making thing. We're just trying to increase the quality and frequency of what we do here and having a bit of resources definitely helps there. So if you want to support us, that's the place to do it. Patreon.com slash scuba official. This week on the show, we have none other than George Fitzgerald. Those of you who followed my career will know that George and I are pretty good mates. He started off on Hot Flush. You could argue that I discovered George. Some people might argue that. I'm not sure if I would completely concur, but uh, some people would say that. But he's been on Domino Records for the past few years. He's just about to release his third album through Domino. And we talk about that in the course of the conversation, amongst lots of other interesting stuff. This is a really quite wide ranging and generalist conversation in what we cover. So we talk a lot about the future of music and the machinations and minutiae about the way the industry works these days and the way it's changed in the recent past, particularly over the course of George's three albums with the aforementioned Domino Records. So yeah, it's a good episode this week, I think. I really enjoyed having a conversation anyway. So if you're not a patron, then the best thing you can do to support the show is to leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Hit the five star button leave us a gushing review. It genuinely does help the show. And if you're not able or willing to shell out actual money, then um, <laughs> that's a good way of doing it. So yeah, please do. Join us in the Discord if you have anything to say. Maybe you want to complain about me plugging in the Patreon the whole time. Do that in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to join the conversation there. And follow the Spotify playlist, for which there is a link in the show notes. Lots of George's music in there this week, as well as all the episodes and um, yeah, a few other tidbits as well. So without further delay, here is George Fitzgerald. George Fitzgerald, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's good to, good to be on. Yeah, this is a long time coming. You were supposed to be one of the first guests and we never quite got round to it, but uh, finally you are here. So um, yeah, what's been going on recently in your life? Um, I yeah, I'm I'm just about to 
release another record. So I'm kind of in the, in like in the throes of promoting an album and doing all of that kind of stuff. It's, um, you know, about two weeks away. So I'm just doing all of the kind of stuff that people make you do or that you make yourself do <laughs> at this kind of time. You're like putting yourself through the mill, um, which is always quite like a sort of unique, unique time for any musician when you've like worked on something for ages and then, and then it just, it's actually going to come out. Um, so yeah, I'm just at that point at the moment. So this is album number three. Um, I didn't intend yeah. to start off talking about albums and records and stuff, but like since we're here, we might may as well just do it. So you signed to Domino back in when was when was it? When did you sign the deal? Oh, I I can't remember. It must be about ten years ago. So my first album was in. I mean, God, my memory is so bad these days. Um. <laughs> My first album was 2015, right? And then I'm, I must have signed that deal about two years before then. So yeah, we're coming up to, you know, like a, you know, coming up to a decade in 2023. Right. And obviously the, like, the landscape has changed a fair bit in that time. But so, so you sign a three album deal and this is, this is the end of it, basically. So I'm not, I'm not going to go quiz you on whether you're going to like resign, <laughs> resign or not. But um, like, why don't you, well, what, what of the differences, if any, and there must have been, what were the, what have been the differences in the way the records have been promoted? Because the other thing that's happened yeah. over that period is the various kind of like ebbs and flows of social media and social media platforms. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this the other day and it's, it's kind of fascinating how much, if you take each album as a snapshot, how much the kind of the the general music industry um, and that it has changed. Obviously, there's been changes in social media, that, but one of the biggest sea changes I've noticed has been between the you know my second album and this current album, which is you know the sort of onus on artists to kind of market things, you know, kind of not necessarily market things through their own channels, but, but the, the, the fact that basically if you're not pushing things through a, a set few channels, you know, like the, everyone knows them like Instagram basically being the main one, but now, you know, rapidly being overtaken by TikTok and things like that. And different age groups will have different, different kind of platforms that they're using the I, I think what's what's become different is over this course of this 10 years it's felt a little bit like um the, the that artist that sort of could exist in the 90s and the 2000s and before who wasn't a very good self-promoter um and was simply very, very good at music and just produced excellent albums and then worked with a really capable, good label, like, you know, a Domino or an XL or, you know, had a, you know, a lucky, lucky experience with a major label or something um, that, that they would take care of the rest. And I think that it's becoming more and more difficult. And this is, this isn't, 
the fault of of labels really per se but it's just it's it's a it's a byproduct of what of where social media is at that that um as you know loads of people on this podcast must have say, said before um and you will have seen in other places that you know like for musicians kind of the job has become increasingly about how you market yourself online and if you if you say that you have a finite amount of time in the day it continually encroaches on what used to be sort of musical generation and writing and more kind of traditionally creative things um so yeah i've definitely and i've definitely noticed that that has really kind of come to a come to a head kind of recently i think that might be because we're about to see instagram basically going the way that facebook did um you know i I think i think a lot of people's kind of organic reach is being is being choked off and i remember when that happened with with facebook that they kind of everybody everybody started you know like uh just not being able to can like reach the people that they reached before and panicking. Yeah, it, and then it they seems to be it. it. It seems to be something that you could really use as a kind of business into if you were kind of any doing anything kind of like underground, basically. It just seems, seems to yeah, be it seems to basically be a sort of egalitarian platform. I mean, if it ever was, you know, that's that's a sort of incredibly naive statement. I think probably, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it was at, to, at, least, to an extent. At least it like, was, yeah, 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 or, or, or at least the sort of gateway thing with social media has always been you know in like social media 2.0 or whatever in the era since myspace has been to bring people in on a sort of egalitarian platform and then choke off choke off the ability of people to reach customers to reach fans whatever and then monetize that or allow people to allow people to to develop big followings and then and then cut cut the link to those uh, and unless it's paid for or unless people you know become kind of increasingly attention seeking online and i think that that's a kind of you know that's a slightly kind of dystopian place that we're in at the moment um well, again I mean, that's, it's that's one of those his, things i mean i'm kind of like gone. sounding like an, an old man i think that basically if i was a little bit younger there are definitely people who who enjoy this and see it as a kind of as a creative pursuit um and i think you're also seeing the like the rise of one of the things i'm very interested in is like um people who are just making music on um on instagram basically or tiktok and it's sort of you know like i follow like sort of modular synth hashtags or whatever. And I've noticed that there are these things mm-hmm. of people making music as like hashtag no DAW. And that's kind of a thing. And it's like right. the composition and the release now is the in- Instagram video. Right. You know, all of the effort goes into that. That's the thing that hits. It's not, it's not it going up on iTunes or Beatport or even Spotify or whatever. It's, it's like, the music on the post that is the release and you know because they're not even recording it into a computer or even on tape it's just kind of here's that i mean in some cases they are and then they're split you know they're kind of post editing but i think that's kind of a fascinating development 
um, that people. Well, that, are just... that is something that is something really interesting because, like, much of the discussion of of the Web three potential uh, revolves around like the central problem with these legacy social media platforms, which is that the user doesn't own anything they post on there, right? And like the potential for the the next generation, the Web three equivalents of these platforms is that they are, you know, the, the, the user has a direct stake, right? And there is direct ownership and potential monetization of those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, Matt Dryhurst has suggested, some of those projects that, that are being worked upon would essentially provide for that kind of quote unquote format of music release, but enable a musician to you know potentially make a living off it yeah i think that that's that stuff is is definitely seems to be where we're heading but you know we're in the foothills of that at best yeah i mean what, what's that would be that would be my take on it. that that that's not that's not just kind of downplay you know what let, let me you know i, th- I think where people like matt dryhurst and whatever discussing this kind of stuff is is really important and i think that that's where we're gonna you know that's kind of figuring out the roadmap so let me let me let me let me respond to to you kind of like being slightly skeptical about that because i was totally of that mindset basically because how does this stuff get taken up right how do we get to a point where like there is mass participation in this kind of a space right and on last week's episode i was talking to danny days about this particular issue and i had a kind of light bulb moment where it just it just something just went off in my brain which which was like why did why did web two become ubiquitous? Right. And it just became a thing that everyone, you just had to have a Facebook account. So everyone just got one. And I think with web three, there will just be a a point at which like so much of just everyday web using requires some sort of wallet and the the pace at which the various chains are being integrated and all the kind of back end stuff is being kind of put together in a way that will be much more user-friendly like there will just be a tipping point at which everyone just needs, everyone needs a wallet or DID is the term that Danny was using, a digital identifier. And at that point, like those sorts of projects just become so much more accessible because that's always been my kind of like, you know, scratching my chin, like how can this possibly work? Like, because, because it seems so esoteric to people now, you know, in, in, Mm. in the way that something like, I don't know, in the way that MySpace would have seemed like in the mid 90s or whatever, you know, although I, th- I think it's probably fair to say that the pace of change has, has picked up a bit since then. But I do think that there is the potential for that to come around sooner rather than later is, is I think, there. Anyway, um, I asked you originally about the way that those three albums were promoted and the difference that difference in between the three campaigns in terms of promotion we've obviously focused on social media but like like in terms of like the the way the label promoted those records tell me a little bit about that and how that changed over the three hmm um i suppose that's yeah that's a slightly more difficult one um i think there are some things that have survived definitely and i think you know one of the things that I've liked about, you know, being on, being on Domino is that it's, 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 um, it's quite in, in, I mean, this in a good way, quite a traditional label. Um, and there's, there's, there's a kind of a belief in doing things kind of properly. 
and um, so I, I think there's still a f there's still an important focus on things like long lead press and things like that and uh, creation of videos. I mean, that's actually something not, uh, that I've not done this time, but like creating creating kind of artistic moments within a campaign, whether it's um, you know, kind of interesting, interesting videos ab about how the artwork was made or an installation to do, to do with the music. I mean, I'm just kind of looking at other campaigns that have been done. I think, I think those things are still really important. I think that, you know, it's, it's very, it's very easy for people to kind of disappear off down this thing where, where, especially now where they kind of think that the, the, the everything to do with the promotion of a record, it just comes down to Instagram and latterly TikTok. Um, there is certainly still a real world factor out there that, you know, you have to make, you have to make people kind of excited on the ground about a record. You have to engage with people in, in, in real world scenarios. It, it goes, it goes completely back to, the idea that, you know, if you really want to rec make a record work, you go off and you tour it and you get in front of people and you show them that the music is good and, and you give them a good experience. And there, there still isn't anything quite as powerful as, as that. It's a little bit more analog and it, you know, it takes longer. It's not as sort of, you don't reach millions of people like you can with a post but it's not as it's not as fleeting and and i think that the that that that's like kind of the thread throughout all of it is that we still the live music industry hasn't been decimated by by this kind of stuff if anything all of all of everything that's gone on all of the kind of um vicissitudes of 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 social media and all of that has kind of underlined how important real world experiences are to people still and you could argue that in the in the in the pandemic after people sitting around and getting kind of cheesed off with just experiencing everything digitally that those things are even more important now but those things haven't disappeared and i still think that 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 is kind of if you take that cog again in the pandemic what you saw is that if you take that kind of one very important cog out of the musical machine it it doesn't work and that you need something to kind of complete that loop um, where pe you're making music, you're performing it to people and you're, re you're receiving kind of real feedback and, um, and kind of confirmation. I mean, you know, it can be, you, it can be being booed or it can be, you know, <laughs> people, people tell you the old records are better or people telling you they love it. But like that, that part of all of this is, is so important. And it's, I, I think people require seeing live music to really become like hardcore fans. Um, I right. think there are, you know, most hardcore fans want to see, still aspire to see that, you know, their favorite act in, in person. That's still, you know, a very, very like major feature of, of the music business. So yeah, like uh, some things have changed drastically, but some, you know, some things have really, really stayed quite, quite the same. And, you know, on, the, on things like press and other things like that, in, in some ways you can argue that, okay, loads of press has been like decimated by, by, by the internet and by social media and all that kind of stuff. 
and you know things like reviews and things like that aren't worth what they used to be and but but weirdly we've come back around to this place where there's just so much stuff for everyone to consume that actually gatekeepers are important Mm. you know you look at people like benji b or something like that like why is why is you know the reason someone like benji or giles giles peterson's show is important to people is because it's basically like a stamp of you know like benji's gone through all the music for you this month and this is what he thinks is good that's basically kind of it and it that's important to people that's really important because because it's so hard to pass now um what 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 is good is and and basically nobody can be across everything I mean, that's also the argument in favour of the continued existence of record labels, basically. Yeah. Uh, and when I've asked when I've asked people on the show about the continued relevance or not of labels, and that's generally speaking what comes up. It's like, like as you said, like the stamp of of quality, and just you know, like you say, with the just the sheer volume of stuff which is emitted into the ether every week. Yeah, people have got to have a some kind of a way of of getting through it and you know like algorithms are you know it's a, it's a bit of a dirty word but like a well constructed algorithm like is your friend, you know, in terms of like seeking mm. out stuff that you will like. I mean conversely like a bad one is is just going to be extremely frustrating and I think you know uh, uh, probably a big part of why Netflix uh <laughs> have had problems in the past few months is because the Netflix album is just obviously quite bad you know as a Netflix customer I'm continually baffled by you know how bad it is and was actually just a sidebar was actually shocked to to discover today that Disney Plus has now has more subscribers than Netflix but um uh, yeah yeah crazy um I was going to go back to what you were saying about the importance of live music and social media I think those those two things are are definitely linked aren't they because you know the the stereotype thing is like you know young people today don't buy stuff they buy experiences right and they want to document mm. those experiences on their social media accounts and the I've had various conversations on the show about the you know the importance of like live music production and making an event out of something and giving people an experience which they can then which they then take with them in their kind of journey of supporting you as an artist, which brings us round to a topic that I wanted to discuss, which is the topic of, of playing live, because that's been a big part of your journey through these three album campaigns. And you know, you were yeah. a, you were a pretty successful DJ prior to this, but took the decision to play live and quote unquote properly play live you know actually playing stuff on stage <laughs> so what i think people listening to this will be interested in well there's a number there's a number of aspects to this which i think will be worth digging into but there is an assumption that playing live makes lots of money and there is also a i mean it's true to say that <laughs> who assumes that <laughs> well, what idiot assumes that <laughs> It's, okay, yeah, it's, go on, it's, true, go on. It's, it's it's true to say that the um like the overall pie of the music industry revenue has shifted from recorded music to to live music, right? That's a kind of broad 
shift, yeah. which is basically accurate. But at the kind of granular level, at the um, you know down down to breaking it down to individual artists, it's it's extremely variable, right? So tell me about building a live show and taking it out and your early experiences doing that and how much money it cost you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, kind of what I don't know where to start with that. I I think. Um, I mean, firstly, the sort of transition from... Well, well hang on a second. Hang on a second. Being, why, did, why, did, why did you want to do it? Why did you want to do it? That's a good question. I think it's because the music changed, basically. Like, I, you know, I put the, the, my first record out, um, which was called Fading Love, and it was... I mean, I went around that summer. I didn't play that one live. I went around that summer, and I remember playing... You were playing to basically, like, a techno crowd who wanted it hard and, you know, wanted kick drums. And this, this thing was just very floaty and down tempo and incredibly depressive and melancholic. And, and it was really just that, you know, I just kind of thought to myself, you know, I'm, I can either go around for the next like two years getting absolutely murdered on stage or just not playing the record or, you know, I'm going to have to find a way if I'm going to write music like this, which is what I'd like firmly decided I wanted to do. Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to kind of represent it in a different way. Um, and the positive spin on that was, you know, sort of subsequently what happened, which is, you know, some of the tracks, you know, be, be, you know, became favorites with some people and you know they became things that people wanted to hear at shows and again they weren't sort of in that kind of anywhere from 118 bpm to 138 or whatever that you know forms most dj festival sets right 150 um, these days until, but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 150 yeah i was like until the last two three years um <laughs> But, you know, that kind of more up-tempo, you know, there, there were things on there that were, you know, like 85 BPM or whatever, and I wasn't going to turn them into like half-time drum and bass. Um, right. And so, you know, it, 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 people people wanted to hear specific things and DJing for me was always something different than like a, a kind of live PA. I think it's nice to play your own tracks, but it 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 starts to defeat the point a little bit when you're that kind of um, hemmed in in terms of what you can play and where you can go. And certainly like I still absolutely love DJing, but that started to chip away at my enjoyment of, of a lot of DJ sets. And it, you know, it still does is, you know, I, I try to be quite careful about where and when I DJ or to be quite realistic about what I'm, going in and going to be expected or, or allowed by a crowd to do, you know, I, I don't want to kind of go around pissing people off. I don't think many DJs do, but I don't want to be, I also don't want to be this like complete, you know, this sort of person that just completely flaps in the wind and does whatever a crowd wants. So, mm. uh, you know, it's like finding a balance and, 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 you know, DJing has always been about, especially now with, with massive hard drives, you can walk onto a stage in front of 10,000 people and you don't know what you're going to do. You can pick anything. Mm. 
that doesn't really unless you're unless you're doing kind of very improvised live music there's there's less of that you know you're kind of like well i'm gonna play my tracks and you know if you don't like them then i'm fucked but also (laughs) that's quite relaxing it's kind of like well yeah you know if half the tent wants to go after the first three tracks, then like, guess what? There's more George Fitzgerald music coming. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, you don't, you don't start looking in the bangers folder. It's like, there are none guys, you know, <laughs> you know, if you didn't like that, then guess what? Um, it, it, and there's, there's something nice about that space. You're definitely kind of more in the moment and the way you attempt to turn things around. If things aren't going your way is you just play harder. You play with more, feeling i guess is what people would say mm. um but you know there's there's it's just like a different scenario and i think um yeah i just i just i just needed needed that really i i felt like um djing i just felt like my dj sets were kind of increasingly being quite like limited experiences for me and i wanted to i wanted to be able to play my music to people and um, and not and do it in a, in a, in a, in a better setting. So, so the kind of the live show idea came about, but in terms of like realizing it, um, it took, you know, it's, it's not easy to, uh, to take these things on because ultimately you're not, when you're in a band scenario, you like, yes, people multi-track things, but, you know, you have your drums, you have your bassist, you have your guitarists and you have your singer. And it's very, e- it's, it's very easy to replicate that on stage unless there's been a lot of trickery in the studio. And then, you know, there's quite a sort of well-trodden path to replicating a lot of the studio stuff on the stage with guitar bands. You know, it's something that's been around for decades. It's a kind of technology in a business that's been around for decades. Live show, like kind of techno... Uh, like electronic music live shows are something that are kind of a little bit newer. The tech is, the tech can be quite esoteric actually, some of it. And you are always, you always, you never have a static number of instruments. It's very, one of the, one of the sort of difficult things is you can be like, okay, well, I'm going to have this Moog synthesizer playing all of the bass lines. Hmm. Um, but with some of the more kind of spectral elements, it becomes really, really difficult because you basically can't, can't have anything other than a sampler or, a, or just putting it on the playback that can replicate those things. And those things are quite often completely central to a, to a track. Mm. Um, you know, so much, so much of electronic music is, is in the production um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You, and, and techno, you know, so much of the kind of creative writing is almost kind of in the production choices yeah so if you start to really all sound design yeah exactly if you start to kind of change those um change those decisions radically it it can fall apart really quickly and so yeah you know one of the one of the ways that people go about these things is to put a lot of things on track um and then some people try and take a lot of things off track and try and play as much as possible. And I, you know, honestly, not just saying this to sort of sit on the fence. Like I, I, I've sort of come to the, come to a place where I think that as long as you're making the 
you're giving the audience something different to what's on the record, everything is fine. You know, uh, as long as you're using the technology in an interesting way and you're presenting a, an, an, a kind of interesting show to the audience, whether you're playing it right in front of them isn't so interesting to me. Right. You know, um, and I say that as, you know, in, initially, you know, I did a year and a half, two years of touring the last record where we basically played everything on stage. You know, you had live, live singers, a drummer, you know, a, a keyboardist and me, me playing keys and triggering loops and all that kind of stuff. And it was, it was incredibly fun to do that. Um, you also come, kind of come up against some, you know, some realities of, of modern music in that, um, you know, which is, you know, things like we would go around and, you know, I had like an incredible tour singer and you would get 50% of people online afterwards being like, your tour singer is amazing. She's absolutely incredible. Like made the show. It was like, yeah, wicked. She is really, really good. Um, and there's that personal element to it. And then, you know, another 50% or some people would be like, oh, I just wanted to hear the vocalist who, you know, I listen to on my headphones. Right, um, right. So, so you've, so sorry, just, just to clarify that then, like you, you had a singer who was singing the songs, but it wasn't the same singers on the record. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, occasionally, occasionally, you know, in sort of bigger cities or, you know, somewhere like London, you know, we could, we could get some of, you know, I was able to get some of the singers who actually did the record to come and sing, mm. but you can't, you know, that's one of the limitations of not being the singer and, you know, being a producer and working with different vocalists is yeah. that it becomes increasingly difficult if you write vocal music and you're, you're the producer to be able to replicate that on stage. Yeah. And I think, you know, like music has, music has changed and music fans have changed. And I think it's like kind of a, it's a, it's slightly a general, I know I started to notice that it was a bit of a generational thing that there were, you know, the kind of your older fans had more of an eye, had more of a sort of feeling about the importance of, um, to them of things being played about like a sort of sense of honesty on yep. stage that like, if you're not, playing it if you're not literally there doing it in front of them that it's somehow fake mm. um and then you know and then we, and then on you know on the flip side of that who were more sympathetic to the to the idea of things sounding quite different to sonically different um to to, to the record yeah and um and then kind of younger people who very often were looking for more of a kind of, for it to sound really, really close to what they were listening to on the record, um, but simultaneously ah, so, worked. Sorry, I was just going to just gonna ask, like, so was the, the split in the, with the vocalists, were the younger people tending to want the original vocals? Is that how that was being split? Yeah. Right, okay. That was the opposite of what I was, what I assumed. That's interesting, okay. Yeah, no, I found that it was, that younger people younger people I, I mean firstly i should say this wasn't something you know that was you know we went around every show and you know twitter was ablaze with people talking about vocalists at my live show it's just sort of a thing yeah, yeah. that i kind of noticed along the way. it's like an, an interesting thing that i noticed along the way that 
there was a very, very clear kind of like generational split that younger electronic music fans and, and music fans um, were much more okay with, I mean, we didn't do any of the stuff on track. I think, I think a, a couple, a couple of vocals, a couple of performances we put on track. Um, and I was very worried about it, about like what people would say. And what I noticed was there's just like no one, kind of no one said anything. Right. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting. And those were kind of younger, slightly younger crowds. And I, I just think that people were kind of more, more flexible in their head technologically. And there's, and there's less of this idea again of what I said about like, you, you know, if you're not, if you're not playing it, uh, if you're not playing it on stage, then somehow this is fake or, you know, the, it's a slightly more old school. I guess it's more of like a rock and roll jazz attitude. Yeah. To, I mean, to, it was it's a hangover from those years. And, and, and it's kind of like people looking at people like Aphex Twin or Chemical Brothers standing there in front of visuals and being like, well, that's not live music. And actually sure. what you've got now is a kind of generation of people who grown up watching like, disclosure play the, the the vocals on stage but doing something interesting like kind of having the video of the person who sung it being synced up and then playing around it and just kind of being a bit little bit more flexible about what the the idea of, of what a live show really is yeah i mean i think it it also reflects just the decline of bands generally as a kind of culturally important like part of music you know, I think like yeah. basically like electronic music, like as a whole, and I, I guess I'm including hip hop in that, has really just taken over entirely at the sort of culturally important level. And, you know, there are obviously hip hop bands that, that play with live instruments, but I mean, the, you know, that's, that's not the culture at all. And just the whole aesthetic around electronic performance, it just doesn't like adhere to those rules you know and like the idea of the old school like live band which is where the whole act essentially revolves around whether they're good at playing live or not you know i've been like recently been reading um david burns book how music works and you know he's talking about how talking heads got started and the extent to which it was just a case of playing in a room like and that's all it was you know they didn't even think about recording and there are basically no acts now that play live before they make a record right pretty much i i'm fairly sure i'm i'm fairly confident in saying that is that fair oh uh, what do you mean in 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 kind of band led music or, or i mean just 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 or, a, anything like like all together like the the first thing when you when you start a music project now you make you make a record. You, you make a tune. You don't you don't get in a rehearsal studio and and and, and play live, right? I that think there whole... are, I think there is like some some there. I think there are bits of the music industry that there are some genres like I th I'm not sure whether like jazz bands are necessarily like that or sure okay all right yeah, there okay. be that you know yeah no but I I, I broadly. I, I agree that that's like a trend. I think that there are some areas of music that are still kind of resistant to that, where where you can be they're kind of led by live performance in a, sure. in a way, like jazz jazz being one, like a really obvious one. But but yeah, broadly, I I, I basically agree with that. Yeah. Okay, so we were going to talk about the economics of touring a live act, right? 
So um, um, I realise I realize this is a slightly, a slightly painful topic, but I know the audience is interested. So tell me about it. Well, where do you want, where do you want me to kind of start with that? Like, I want you to start at the, the start. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, especially now, the, there are so many more startup costs to a live show than there are, than there are to DJing. Um, if we're just speaking specifically about electronic music, yeah. um, you know, you've got, you've got all of the, you know, obviously if you're a singer songwriter and you can sit on stage with a guitar, then might, you know, <laughs> that's great for you. Uh, and I frequently feel jealous of people like that, but, um, you know, ultimately there's quite a lot of kit that's just sort of a very, very unsexy pieces of kit that you need to get your head around. I mean, I made the kind of completely insane decision to build like a kind of splitter rig, like a kind of backup rig for my first show for, for all of it and to do it kind of all, all myself. And there wasn't any stuff online about that stuff. That was all very, there were no, at that time there were no, and to, to explain what that is, that, that means that kind of if your computer drops out, dies on stage, there's a backup rig which runs perfectly in sync um, with right. all of your with all of your instruments that you're playing from the computer, and then all of the kind of skeleton backbone, all of the MIDI messages that the program changes that are being sent out to different synths, all of that kind of stuff. That computer is mimicked in a second is basically mimicked in a second laptop, and and if you're doing it properly the audience shouldn't really be able to tell that one has died and it's switched onto the second one. Mm. Somebody here, people have actually made latterly kind of made an, in, uh, like a fairly cheap interface that does that for you. Now you still need two computers, but at the time I basically had to, you know, build that thing from scratch, you know, trawling, trawling, you know, different sub threads of, of, of like MIDI tech and things like right. that, which, you know, you know, and I, and I did it and the, and the, and the show was held together with sticky tape basically. And, and was done, you know, had so many kind of completely weird errors on it and, and very, very, um, weird ways of doing things that I just come up with because I had, I had no roadmap. I had a, I had a couple of, I had a couple of people who kind of helped me along the way. I had, um, a friend, uh, who still plays in my band uh, called Mike LaSurge, who had been working with Bonobo for years. And uh, I was introduced to him through Psy Bonobo. And we we kind of started building the show and everything. And the way, the way we approached it, you know, was basically he would help with sourcing players and scoring parts out and some of the Ableton stuff. And then, you know, we'd, we'd basically go from there, but a lot of it, we were like, in terms of the technical stuff, we were really just kind of making up as we went along. And, you know, I, w I went out there and I just kind of got on with it. And now I've got some like really kind of great road or not so great sort of stories of, you know, going on stage in front of several thousand people at important European festivals and my keyboard playing his keyboard and nothing working <laughs> and you know 
synthesizer patches changing to like rave stabs in the middle of in the middle of parts <laughs> because because things are too hot and synthesizers coming out of boxes freezing cold and not staying in tune and having to go straight on stage and all this kind of stuff but you know ultimately those are you know that kind of that that that's like that is actually that's live music like every, in in live shows where you've got so many different bits of kit on stage like something is on the blink at some time that the, the 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 at any one time i can't remember a show where nothing has gone wrong um it's more a case right. of just knowing what could go wrong and how you deal with it in each in each instance you know and and then also not sort of being so worried about those things going wrong you know like i um we did we did a show uh in lisbon uh in like 2019 i believe or t- yeah summer 2019 and it, we were on the equivalent you know got told about five minutes before going on stage that we were going to be on the equivalent of the red button on bbc uh, you know on uh, right, right. portuguese bbc you know the national broadcaster mm-hmm. We went on stage and we're like, okay, great. And then, you know, halfway through the set, everything just goes poof and <laughs> stops in front of every. And it had never happened before, like not not complete, you know, everything shits the bed sort of scenario. And I, you know, I sort of sat there for for a split second, was like, ah, oh, this was, you know, this was my this was my nightmare <laughs> that you know, I'm I am I'm naked in front of you know like five thousand people in Lisbon and you know. All this kind of stuff. And we, it was a power cut side stage. So it wasn't really our fault. And we powered everything up again. And I sort of got the microphone out and started really awkwardly talking to people. I'm not very good at talking to people on stage, but, you know, murmured some things like, oh, hey guys, it's live music, isn't it? (laughs) And, you know, mic on keys, you know, had a bit of like a noodle away on a patch whilst we got everything um, put together again. And then, you know, when we, when we turned back on and started the track again, that we, that had been interrupted, the place went absolutely insane. Yeah. Okay. And it was like the, one of the most memorable shows that we did because ultimately, unless you go and play in the worst place in the world, and I don't know where that is, people don't want you to fuck up. They just don't, they would, they want you to do well on stage. And that's the thing you kind of have to remember is that no one wants you to do a shit show. And, and like, if, if something like that happens, it can be a really nice moment. It's a little bit like when records used to skip, you're yeah. like, yeah, okay. If the record continually skips, it's, it's annoying. But you know, if the record skips, the, the crowd are kind of like, aha, yeah. And then, you know, you put it back to the beginning and everyone claps, yeah. you know, and that's actually, that's sort of a thing that you miss now in, in DJing because the, the, the pioneer tech has just become so reliable you know, like even if you have that thing where, you know, the, the sort of the USB fucks up and it puts you on the emergency loop. I don't think there even is an emergency loop on CDJ 3000s anymore. I think it's just like the track plays out of the RAM. Right. You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you don't even have this kind of shit sort of four beat loop that goes on that sounded slightly off that we've yeah. had for the last 10 years. I, I mean, I can't remember the last time something really, really bad happened on stage whilst I was DJing that, that, that could have been viewed as my fault or, yep. you know, right. Uh, I just can't. And, and actually weirdly that takes some of you're flying with a safety net the whole time. And that takes some of the enjoyment away a little bit. I find 
Yeah, okay. So the question was about economics and we haven't really talked about that. So. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, okay, I keep on get, keep on getting distracted. Yeah, so I yeah, let me try and get back on track with this. You have to buy you have to invest a lot in a live show at the beginning and you can make you can definitely make some more kind of judicious choices about how much stuff you're going to put on stage, but ultimately you usually are going to have to start making like some kind of sensible decisions like I'm not going to put my vintage mini moog on stage because it probably won't stay in tune. And if somebody in Chicago airport throws it around, I that's I don't want that to happen. And you you are you kind of the you you become slightly less romantic and more. There's a reason why when you go around watching electronic groups that every, everyone is playing with like three or four different kinds. There are moogs on stage. There's Dave Smith things there's um, novation things and there's a few others and it's because they're really good they tour really well and if somebody destroys it uh, in baggage handling you can go straight down to guitar center and buy another one usually yeah and those things are actually you start to actually experience those things and those things are actually quite important um you know, if you've got like one, you sort of start to view things as a like, where are like the fail points of a show? And anyway, like going back to the money side of that, like you can, you can, you can plan that um, and you can plan it well. But at the beginning, it's very hard to have all of that experience unless you've got someone guiding you. And so you ultimately waste quite a lot of money on that. And then, you know, what I'd say about live music is that like, yeah, the live music business does account. I think if you, you know, if you look at live live music and you look at the headline figures like yeah that i don't know whether this is true now but like i definitely over the last like decade or two it's with the advent of 360 deals and all that kind of stuff it was becoming more and more and outsizing like recorded music but the thing i'd say about that is that it's like almost everything else in music which is that there's a few acts at the top that take in an enormous band of that of that of that revenue basically mm-hmm. and that it's not it's not this sort of evenly it's like dj fees or it's like work that goes to mix engineers or mastering engineers is that there's actually like a sort of a small band of people who are taking all of the biggest work there's like a kind of a elite group within all of these subsections of music and people people sort of gravitate back to those to those people and i'd say that that's that's very much replicated in live music and and so making making these things profitable or making them sustainable put it like that is i mean first of all you have to decide what you're doing a live show for right i mean are you doing it to make money or are you doing it to promote your music and to have cool life experiences or are you kind of wanting to do both you have to sort of figure out where your line is there. I mean, I'd say if you're doing it to get rich, it's a pretty fucking dumb idea. Like there are definitely much, there are much cleverer ways in within music itself, which is a fairly stupid way to become rich anyway, um, at least as an artist. There are cleverer ways to do it than having a live show. There are definitely like big, there's big money at the top of, of these things. But yeah, it, it, it's... It's. I think I, the, the the live. What what was interesting is that let's let's contrast it against DJing for a second. Like live shows, the live show world is very much like this sort of snakes and ladders type um, scenario of like within every city 
it starts being about how many tickets you can sell Mm. and then what your worth within the market is. And if you compare that to um, DJing, like DJing so often is about, there are like what people call hard ticket shows where, you know, it's like, no ticket is being sold unless people know, you know, everybody who's coming is coming to see that artist. But actually, if you think about your Berghines, your Soco Locos, your Fabrics, like people are quite often coming to a club because of the club, because of the brand. Um, they're coming out because it's Saturday night and they want yeah, to go Yeah, that's the rave clubbing. culture, right? You're going raving. That's rave culture. It's quite often, you know, like obviously there are star DJs and things like that, but there's definitely like a kind of subset of people and this is what I mean I think this is why live music is quite often looked at DJing and being like that's a pretty good model because (laughs) there's a sort of rump of people who are ultimately not very big artists in terms of streams sales ticket sales any normal metrics but they're respected within a scene and they earn quite a lot of money actually by going around and being paid the sort of fees that you would if you were a live act by selling a shitload of tickets. Yeah. Basically. And there's a, and there's a sort of dis, there's a disparity there and there are, there are, you know, there's definitely a kind of a lot of DJs who make a career out of basically just living within this sweet spot really and never really, you know, sticking their head up and, you know, they play on multi-bills and they, um, you know, with multi, with loads of different artists and it's, it's never really about them going on a, on a Tuesday night to Manchester and trying to sell tickets there or something like that. Or like, I don't know, Wednesday night in Detroit or something like that. I mean, you know, you really quickly find, you really think, quickly uh, find speech, out like... I think you're speaking for experience there, I believe. <laughs> No, no comment. Um, I, I mean, like life, life shows, life shows are, yeah, a real sort of emotional roller coaster as well because you, you know, it's all crammed in, very, very in a very, very tight space. So you, you know, to go to, to pick that particular example, right? I, you know, I toured the US on the last campaign and we'd had some problems with the, with the tour and stuff and with some of the venues and we'd had to like postpone the tour. And that obviously always pisses people off a little bit. And then, you know, we finally went and did the tour and it was basically amazing. I, you know, we had these like incredible moments of, you know, playing sold out shows in places like New York and, you know, the coastal cities and the usual places you'd expect this sort of thing to be popular but then I just had this sort of like really sobering moment of going to going to Detroit, obviously, which is kind of, you know, you build Detroit up in your head. And like I've been to Detroit before and I know that it's not this like Disneyland for techno. But, you know, obviously it's something that kind of, it's, an, it's a city that matters in your head if you've got kind of any respect for the music, um, just like Chicago, just like New York. And, you know, we went and played there on a, on a Tuesday played to like 20 people and the, like the night before I played to like 900 people in, in, in New York and had one of the best nights of my life. And it just this sort of emotional up and down of that <laughs> yep. was, was, was kind of, was kind of amazing. And like, you know, I think you, I think you have to be kind of ready for, 
for that with live shows is that it, it puts into relief like where you have fans, where you don't, where people love you, where people don't give a shit. And what things in your catalogue people actually like and what they're sort of more indifferent about. And those things often vary pretty wildly from what you think. And then, and then you have to be, you know, amidst all of that, going back to the money thing, you have to be ready for the fact that these things kind of, uh, most, most times, like oftentimes are basically a loss leader, especially if you're touring with a band. Um, you know, if you're taking, if you're taking like seven people around with you and then, you know, I wasn't taking seven. I think I had six, six in the touring party, including myself. That's six, six flights, six hotels, everything else, you know, every day that people are out there, you know, people are working, you know, they're not. I was just going to make the point that, you know, it's become a super stereotypical thing now of a DJ social media thing to post from your private jet. And you do not see many touring live acts posting from private jets, right? For, for basically that reason, you know, it's just the economics of yeah. it just, just don't work, you know? And just weirdly, and, weirdly, that's because that's, that thing has become okay again, hasn't it? Wasn't there a period where you were just an automatic wanker for posting from a private jet? Oh and yeah. It's, I've just it's, noticed it's, people sort of not, I've just found that just as a complete sidebar that I, I've noticed yeah, it being yeah, kind no, of, it's, I've it's, noticed it's sort of people not being pinged in the same way. I think basically that, like um, it was it was quite like when it first started appearing as something that people did it just seemed like so much of a super rich thing to do that people kind of like reacted but now you basically see every entertainer doing it I mean I don't know anything about the like the, the cost association I've got a vague idea about how much private jet costs but like you know you've, de- I, you've I mean, definitely googled it before <laughs> I mean, well, I've actually got a question which is going to relate to this, which is about about fuel prices. But like, we'll we'll get onto that in a, in a moment. Um, but like, I think just in terms of what you were saying about the perception of it, I think again, it's just it's just been normalised. It's just kind of like landed as this kind of like status thing now, where like there is really no blowback. And and actually, I think it's just kind of been rolled into the general acceptance of money and like the the idea that the artists that you follow can do what we as kids would have seen as being selling out you know i think i you know I yeah just, i think that's a very um, interesting thing that's happened yeah i th- i i, I yeah. was reading i got a linkedin update earlier on just before we went in this from from a, a famous dj's manager plugging their tie in with a extremely famous fashion brand you know and person in question was a uh, famous dj in the 90s and and that's something that that person would never have done in the 90s you know not a fucking chance yeah and now it's just completely accepted and i i can't really i was talking to dogfire about this actually and we were kind of scratching our collective heads about it as to why there was this sea change because selling out as a concept now doesn't really exist like in that way and you can obviously lose your reputation very easily but losing it by doing a corporate deal doesn't and unless that corporate deal is the wrong sort of corporate deal i mean i i guess if you did a a tie-in with like chevron that probably wouldn't go down too well but like something like fashion is just completely accepted even if it's the most like commercial fashion brand what do you think about that yeah I, yeah I, I i totally agree i mean i think do you remember there was 
it was like a couple of years ago. I can't remember whether it was during the pandemic or pre it or whatever, where um, Caribou tweeted something about turning down a a um, a corporate gig or right. something for like a very large amount of money. And it was it was like, I guess, in some ways, like a, f- a sort of ill-judged tweet. You know, he hadn't looked at the other side of it. But basically, like, I was... You mean he uh, was... It's not the best was, example. I, basically, what he said was like, why would I ever do this gig? Like, they offered me 40 grand and I turned it down. Right. right. As if like it was completely self-explanatory that you, you turn those things down. And I thought that that was really interesting because like, I definitely feel that like I'm basically the youngest of a sort of generation of people who agree with that, who were kind of like, or at least sort of feel that sentiment. Like yeah. I've definitely, you know, I think, I think it's a reality of, of being a, of being an artist now that you, as you said, that you you kind of take a view on corporate money in what you do and everybody has bills to pay and everyone has a kind of career career to cover and like people will people sort of make a decision on where they're where what they're comfortable with lies. But but what's interesting is that there definitely used to be this sort of like nineties kind of assumption that it was like if you were in certain genres of music, you were anti you were basically anti-establishment and corporate music um, and uh, corporate involvement in music and fashion involvement in music was something to, to, to be against. And, and I, not I just be against, be absolutely like vehemently against. Yeah, absolutely like right? m- militant about it. I was watching that thing on, there's this thing about on, on Netflix about Woodstock Mm. Um, about the, the 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 Woodstock that went wrong with like Limp Bizkit and everybody, something like that. And basically, what was really interesting was this moment where like um, I can't remember what that band that did Pretty Fly for a White Guy, um, uh, the Offspring. Yeah, you know, you know how I mean. Yeah, the Offspring. The Offspring were on stage, and there was this, and they were talking about how people were actually people in the crowd were hostile to MTV because MTV had been rock, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. MTV had started playing the Backstreet Boys and had become right. the face of this new kind of pop music, you know, back you know, boy bands and all that kind of stuff. And the, basically this offspring guy was like beheading Backstreet Boys dolls <laughs> on the, and beating them up on, on the stage in their performance. And then like, I think like there's something of like Fred Durst on stage being like, well, you know, fuck the Backstreet Boys. And yeah. And you, and then you look at that era as well. And you, you look at like Moby, Moby, you know, licensing all of his stuff to kind of car adverts. And like, I think that there isn't anybody who wouldn't say that that didn't leave a taste in the mouth slightly with that music from that time that basically, you know, that was, I think that's still the most kind of licensed record of all time, possibly. I think every every single track ended up, every track ended up being on some enormous advert. And that created a perception around that album that obviously that album's the I think it's the biggest electronic album ever, but it changed people's idea, I think, fundamentally about who he was and and all that kind of stuff. And I think that he, in a lot of ways, sort of won that argument. <laughs> it, um, you know, or at least, you know, people looking at that argument today w- wouldn't look at it in the same way. And I'd, I, to me, sort of go to the, to the me, answer me, to this. Yeah, yeah let, let, me, let me just make a point here, adjacent to this, more directly relevant to this which is 
to like to do with TV ads. Because in the 90s, there was a period where TV ads were really, really cool and were seen as being kind of almost cutting edge art. Like there was a there was a yeah. period of of about five years, I think, or so, so, some something around that, like in the mid in the mid nineties, where like advertising got really esoteric. It got really yeah. I think oh, artistic. They the Guinness is, advert. It, yeah, well, that's exactly yeah. The, yeah, I the mean, Guinness that, advert with left field. Yeah, where, uh, that was the that was the example that I was going to use. Yeah, exactly. And it almost became anti corporate in of itself, as ridiculous as that sounds. Mm. But the the nineties were, were a very strange time because because uh, you know it was this period where the end of history had happened supposedly you know and we were living in this supposedly post racial era and you know like Hollywood had decided that you know racism wasn't a thing anymore and we'd all got over it and there were everything was just in flux there you know in a way which we now can you know pretty much <laughs> categorically say was a bit of a mirage but just in just in the case of um. Just taking TV ads as a as a specific example, it seemed to like fall into the like this is actually okay category for that selling out concept. Like, I mean, it was it was it was ambiguous anyway to put it mildly. I would say. Yeah, but so I think the different the difference is now that like you, I mean, where I think where I personally think this sort of came from was you, you know things like take Red Bull. Red Bull was a really good example of, you know, yeah. Red Bull Music Academy and the, you know, Red Bull guerrilla marketing that they had done in things like extreme sports and stuff like that. And basically, you know, they were very, very early onto all of that stuff with Red Bull Music Academy. And I remember, you know, occasionally people used to be like, well, hold on a second. This is like kind of a, a massive energy drink company. Like, does this, you know, how do I feel about this? But, you know, then, but basically what they were facilitating for people was so attractive, you know, the, 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 the music academy giving people, um, a lot of what in music is a lot of money, you know, things like, you know, 10 grand to go and put on a night or all this kind of stuff and facilitating kind of lineups and collaborations and events that just otherwise wouldn't happen because we were in a time where Napster had decimated everything. We were basically the lowest, but vinyl sales had disappeared. And um, I think the music industry was basically kind of on its knees and streaming hadn't happened. And a lot of corporate money propped up. There was a lot of creative stuff that that happened. I mean, you know, like I remember doing boiler rooms and boiler room being this very, you know, boiler room being boiler room at the beginning. And then, you, you know, like a, a, a Ballantine's fridge would appear in the corner or <laughs> right, yeah, something yeah. like that. And, and that's, that's not me criticizing them. That's just kind of like, obviously they had to make a decision about how they continued as a business, how they, how they, how they like made cool stuff happen, you know, whether it would be like, Converse are like Converse want these DJs to go and fly to India or whatever and and play there or that you know this drinks company wants you to do something with like rappers in Atlanta or something like that right there's basically isn't any money or there wasn't there hasn't been for years and there still kind of isn't in music to to do those things 
and basically the, the I think the the sort of un, quote unquote underground music or like grassroots music has got a bit drunk really on being able to take corporate money essentially what is basically like corporate you know brand washing or you know in in a more benign sense just people creating associations in 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 people's heads so that when they when they go and buy an energy drink and they've got this 10 on the shelf they pick the red bull because they just hear red bull all the time and have positive associations with it Mm -hmm. um that stuff has like facilitated a lot of uh, just a lot of artistic stuff over the last like 10, 20 years. So the question is, you know, at what cost it's come and whether like, whether, you know, we much like an ecosystem where we've reached this unsurprising place where the kids who grew up watching that stuff, who are now starting to be the, the artists who were on Boiler Room, just see it as a complete fact of, not only as a fact of life, but something to aspire to. That it's like having, having a, a collab with or you know having a big brand involved especially if it's a cool one is just that's that just doubles doubles the win you know and i I think there are are very few things out there where people are like uh you know i don't want any corporate involvement i don't want i think people are all about collaborations now yeah i mean it's a very interesting way of analyzing it actually just looking at the the shortfall in revenue that there was in music post Napster, and like you just described, like the way that that was made, that was made up in part by by corporations. I went back and I read No Logo by Naomi Klein fairly recently, which was late nineties published, and is a, a basically a you know for anyone who hasn't read it is a kind of treatise on that whole kind of anti capitalist, but it's quite but specifically anti corporate attitude. And describes how um, basically marketing departments co-opt social movements in a very systematic way, and and in a way which is completely predictable, um, and and actually makes complete sense. If you're a marketer, then you want to be on at, at, you know on the zeitgeist, right? And marketers look to attract young people above everyone else, um, and this is a process which which kind of repeats itself over time but when when the music industry was a, a bit more self-sustaining i.e and 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 i say self-sustaining in sort of in quotation marks because i mean obviously the i mean the, most, the music industry has a kind of history of exploitation of artists but whilst there was a opportunity for people to make a living from music in a way that they're not really, or, or post-Napster was much more difficult. And just a sidebar to say that a lot of that is because of other factors in society, not least the price of housing. But <clears throat> but generally, you know, the characterization that you've just made of um, corporate money picking up the slack is, I think it does explain a lot of the kind of normalization of what we would have seen as being selling out. And streaming, generally speaking, is is demonised by a lot of people. But actually, it's like I'm not, I'm not going to go as far so far as to say save the music industry. But like a lot of that lost revenue has come back through streaming. But corporate money isn't going anywhere, right? And this idea of or that the the lack of idea of selling out being a being an important thing isn't going away either. How do you feel about all that stuff I've just said? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. I I remember like years ago 
talking to a friend of mine who who was working in marketing basically or uh, sort of you could call it marketing like consulting with a bit of kind of marketing and he he said you know he was talking to me about how and this was at the beginning of like the boiler room era right that he was he was basically saying that like ideas within advertising and marketing the kind of like the prevailing uh thought in those spaces now was that you had to go for apex you know people at the apex of 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 social groups and this this must be like the sort of proto influencer kind of thought that you know you could shortcut an incredible amount of advertising spend by just finding out these people within different cultural subgenres and different tribes and finding those people and just targeting them, getting them to wear your thing, getting them to co-sign, getting them to play right. with your brand in the background. And that basically everything would trickle down from those people. And what you didn't have to do was this bottom, bottom up approach to advertising anymore, which was just, are we going to hit everybody we can with like a Super Bowl advert? Yep. You know, that being the most extreme example or, you know, an advert during the World Cup or something. It's like, no, actually, we're going to, we're just going to, identify these people and hit them and i think that when you look at especially underground music and especially things like boiler room that was just like exactly what those kinds of marketing people were looking for is like can you get really cool musical artists to start endorsing this stuff or at least existing alongside it and so i think that there was like it wasn't just this sort of like it came in, you know, the money arrived via osmosis. This was something that was kind of like targeted by by corporate money, by by advertising, by advertising itself and marketing changing to to kind of to, to to target these things. And that's now that is basically all the, what I meant with influencers. The influencer is the is the realization and formalization of that process now it's just being formalized from the other end it's people saying well okay well you you're treating me you're looking for apex people who influence other people well i'm going to actively go out and try and fabricate a, a, a some influence basically whereas you know before you know people would have probably been targeting people who were very fashionable or people at certain labels or whatever it was, or sports stars. Okay. Those are, you know, obviously like the obvious ones, but um, the whole thing's just kind of been formalized as, as, as the way that marketing works. And so corporate money exists alongside, alongside cultural stuff in a way that it hasn't in, you know, it didn't up until sort of the late two thousands and early 2010s in, in things like electronic music. I think. Um, and you know, it's, it's very, it's very hard to, it's something that I've kind of tried to come to terms with. Um, you know, the, 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 the fact that like everybody's line of where they stop being how much of an artist they are and how much of an influence that they are, it, it, you know, I, with a lot of different artists out there now, there's there's varying degrees if that makes sense 
you know, what, what makes up the, the percentage of a career, you know, there are definitely some people out there who are like, well, you're kind of 90% influencer and 10, but the music doesn't really seem to be the definitive factor here in what's generating revenue in what's generating attention. And then, you know, there are people right at the other end of the scale who were almost, who were so unattractive, basically so unattractive to sort of marketing companies that their career almost by, and then a few people who choose to be like this, who are just kind of all music. And I don't, I'm not really making a value judgment on either of those things. I think that's just like where we've arrived is, is that marketing is done through, through sort of apex individuals now. So you know, I don't think you're going to change it until social media fundamentally changes and it doesn't seem like the direction of travel is to is to reverse it. All of that totally resonates. I mean, what's remarkable about it to me is that this has developed alongside something which was the continuation of that kind of no logo movement, which is the kind of social liberal side to youth culture now and, and to just culture generally, a lot of which has a pretty pronounced like anti-capitalist flavour to it. I would call it social liberalism because most of it is played out in the debates about, you know, about gender, about trans rights and all, all the rest of it. But it is very much flavoured with a smash the economic system as well as these legacy social conservative forces. But it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to have made any kind of impact in, mm. you know, in, in what we've been talking about. And this is something I'm, I have really struggled to wrap my head around because it seems like it, it really should, you know? <laughs> well, I think what one of the things that, that's going on at, at the moment is that there's a kind of, one of the things that I think people talk about with, you know, like people from older generations when they look at sort of younger kids is sort of, people say, oh, you know, it doesn't, make sense you know the proximity of uh anti-capitalist sentiment and then very very commercial attitudes to things and then people you know sort of try and intellectualize that and they're like you know there's kids now are just basically sort of nihilistic about everything and it's and, and stuff like that and, and i i would go I, I think that's really unfair to be honest i think that there's something that that there's definitely a sort of it's not just Gen Z and, you know, subsequent generation. I think it's something that, you know, probably started with millennials, which is like a, basically just a resignation to, to the, to sort of the undefeatable nature of corporate money right. and the undefeatable nature of loads of things in your life. The sort of the, the blob of, you mentioned rising house prices and things like that is that there's, you know, it's a generation of people who are just starting to be kind of thwarted across the board in loads mm. of things. And then people are sort of asking kids to, you know, make their social activism make sense in a sort of historical context. And it's, I think it's just sort of really, really unfair, basically, because it's like, well, nothing they do makes any difference. You know, or that, or you know, that's the sort of that's the feeling that a lot of people have, and you know, to sort of circle that back to sort of Web three point and what that could do with music, and I, I'm incredibly interested in what that technology could do for music and could do for artists, and I 
I'm not critical at all about the people in that space who were talking about it. I, th- I think they're incredibly important and I pay a lot of attention to them. I am just slightly sceptical about the fact that corporate money always seems to win and always seems to take sort of bend whatever's happening to its own to its own needs and the idea that we're going to end up in a in a in a sort of artistic ecosystem that benefits the artist i just don't see that happening i th- i think that you know that as you said the history of recorded music has been a history of of sort of exploitation of the artists in varying degrees and i really really hope that that's not where we end up and and i commend anyone who is sort of making you know is actively pushing an agenda that that kind of promotes you know artists artists rights and 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 everything but i still have this massive sort of skepticism that what's going to happen is is very similar to you know kind of what happened with streaming and you know if you look at the arc from downloads to where we're at with the way streaming revenues are divvied up by major labels, basically, uh, you know, that's not what Napster was setting out to do. It, you know, it's generated enormous revenues, so, you know, some unprecedented revenues for, for aspects of the music industry. And that's a massive positive, but we haven't yet arrived at a place where relatively popular artists have kind of su- sustainable lives. And I'm skeptical about whether that will ever happen to be honest, because of, because of simply the, the fact that the chips are stacked too high on one side compared to the other. And the, yeah. So, I mean, that's a kind of long, long rant about everything, but I think, I think, um, I, I don't, I don't blame anyone who's kind of constellation of, of radicalism and social liberalism is juxtaposed with, with like a bit of corporate fashion or, or, or late capitalism. I think it's, you know, nobody nobody is ma- is making sense of this stuff at the moment yeah totally i mentioned before that i may have a a question about fuel prices and i'm going to dive into it now because what you were saying before about the seeming inevitability of the forces that you've been talking about so the, the inevitability of like rising house prices and corporate money just you know just eating everything Really, that that's a story which has been the story of globalization, basically, which is essentially the last forty to fifty years. And there is an argument currently centered around, you know, what's happening in various parts of the world and what's happening in various parts of the economy, which suggests that globalization may may have peaked and maybe going into reverse and maybe a lot of the forces that have been driving the kinds of stuff that have made things seem so hopeless for young people. And I just about include myself in that, although I'm definitely not young, but like, you know, people, certainly people of, um, you know, around our age definitely feel this too. There is a decent chance that the next 20 years are going to look very different to the previous 20 years, put it that way, in terms of economics and geopolitics. And, I mean, like the the specific question I wanted to ask you actually was, I mean, with, with it goes back to the economics of touring and concerns, you know, the logistics of like a global touring calendar in a world which is no longer 
like connected up to the extent that it has been. So for example, like I noticed like shifted tweeted yesterday, like the flight path of his journey to Australia, which was avoiding Russian airspace and was going to take you know exponentially longer. And, you know, we were talking earlier about you know, the cost of a private jet and, and you know, the, the impact that the oil price might have on that. And I wonder what you think about the possibility of a broader shift in all of these global forces which have shaped the, the world that we've lived in during our lifetimes, going into, a, into reverse a bit and how that might affect what we broadly do in the music industry. Mm, that's, yeah, that's a, I've, I've been thinking about that quite a bit because of, you know, I've been doing a few gigs this summer and going in and out of kind of British airports and, you know, other, other airports in Europe mainly, and just sort of noticing the kind of chaos that there is in, in airports at the moment and kind of the rise, the rising costs of air travel, the rising costs of getting to airports i think i think you're i i mean it 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 depends on to which to what degree of you know you're going to see globalism globalization kind of roll back (laughs) like you know if we're talking in a sort of short-term brexity kind of mild reduction protectionist kind of scenario then i think you know what british passport holders are experiencing with touring in Europe and Brexit is is kind of what a lot of people will have down the line which is just you know more paperwork and it not being insurmountable but it just reducing things a little bit and there being this sort of slightly kind of nebulous reduction in things that you can't quite put your finger on and that and that people at the bottom will feel the most mm. i think if you're if you're looking at at you know real prolonged um, cost of living crises and things like that. I think you're going to maybe see some of the things that some of these ideas that were, you know, coming up during the pandemic of like localism and and things like that, are kind of becoming becoming more apparent. Which, to be honest, like I I really I really support. I really I really am in favour of. I I kind of I think we you know we've reached a point where that's a little bit absurd where you can go all around the world and essentially see the same lineups and that yeah. it, it used to be um, at the beginning of the sort of easy jet Ryanair DJing revolution that happened in Europe. There would definitely was more of a kind of difference between what, you know, your crowd in Amsterdam liked um, or had listened to or had been exposed to compared to somewhere like London. Whereas, whereas now it's genuinely the case that like you go to Mumbai or, you know, Melbourne, anywhere where there's kind of um, people who are switched on and have a, like an internet connection. And they, they're not only kind of like up on things, like they know what happened yesterday that, you know, they're on social media and they, and they know, they know they know everything they're, they're to all intents and purposes very very similar to to a crowd in your home city or a crowd in you know the more kind of traditional hotbeds of 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 electronic music like you know berlin new york london um mm-hmm. amsterdam and there's definitely something nice about that on the one hand but it is also i think it might it might have it might have gone too far 
I'm not anti-globalization at all. Like I think it's, you know, basically we've been, we've been living in a, you know, an utterly sort of incredible era of human existence. And I'm quite scared about the idea of all of that being rolled back. <laughs> if there's one silver lining to that um, within dance music, it it might be that, that you see more of a kind of focus on, on local acts. I think, again, in a truly sort of apocalyptic scenario, you'll see people returning to the ideas that they had in, in the pandemic. Like, I wonder whether we are going to sort of, somebody at some point is going to crack, you know, the, the virtual headset rave and whether, yep. you know, I mean, you you could argue that things like Boiler Room and Her and things like that are, you know, the internet's version of, of Berghain or, or famous clubs they're like these sort of traveling things that kind of in to most people like in, exist as a place on the internet and surely kind of the next step on from that is being able to actually inhabit these things you know and you know i suppose like this sort of metaverse web 3.0 thing and obviously that at the moment that just seems so incredibly lame and dystopian and in some ways but <laughs> Again, I, I think it's just a question of kind of technology and and people adopting these things. You know, the, the people becoming more kind of generous towards the technology and, you know, people, I remember people being awkward about selfies and then obviously that, right. that didn't last, uh, <laughs> you know. And who's to say that somebody won't, won't create a Web 3.0 Berkine? I mean... I I certainly wouldn't bet against that. You mean a sort of VR driven thing? Is that, is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So like I sense what what I'm what I'm getting at is that in in a world where 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 physical travel becomes harder, um, yep. we're go, we're going to we're going to inevitably trend back towards you know some of the ideas that came up in the pandemic of of, of people connecting more digitally. The question the question is just kind of the degree and the pressure. Obviously, the pandemic sped up all of these ideas that might have happened over 20, 30 years. And that and the sort of the the foot's come off the accelerator now with that. This sort of rolling back of globalization that we're seeing with, you know, the war in Ukraine and everything else that might be coming down the down the path that could speed up the process again, I I think. And we, you know, we really might be seeing some of those ideas actually becoming really normal. But then again, you know, if all of this sort of stuff doesn't quite happen in in the way we think it's going to, then I don't see any reason why things won't largely continue in the way in the in the way that they are at the moment. I th- I think you're definitely going to see in the short term like an a sort of exacerbation of that thing of like only there being a few really big acts that go around and tour everywhere and and are on every lineup because they can afford to be paid to absorb the rising costs. Um, Right. And you, and, and again, like acts at the bottom are going to find it harder to absorb those costs. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the, in the environment of increasing rates of inflation, right. Just, just that side of it, which may or may not be here to stay. I mean, you know, the we've had basically there was a forty-year period of declining inflation and and cheap money, and there's a fairly good chance that that's over. And when I say over, I mean you know for the next decade or or two, it will be a very very different world in that sense. And what has made 
that kind of global touring ecosystem work has largely been those kind of low costs and and also and low low fuel costs as well, like particularly. I'll be interested to see how, how it plays out. But it's really, really interesting what you say about the um the trends that emerged during the pandemic. Cause I hadn't thought about it like that at all, but it makes complete sense that in a world which becomes bigger, as in, you know, becomes becomes harder to to travel around in a physical way, that that would the combination of that and a you know rapidly improving virtual reality experience those two things going together would just have a you know complementary effect in a way which would be pretty game-changing potentially yeah yeah absolutely and i i wonder whether some of the focus on i mean i i you know maybe this is like kind of spurious maybe but i think there's a kind of like a focus on with some of these tech companies on people kind of adopting new 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 kind of standards of like listening apparatus so if you look at like the kind of atmos things and the surround things that are that are kind of being built into headphones now i think you you know there's going to be a drive towards people listening on ever more kind of sophisticated bits of hardware you know you can now have spatial audio inside two little star trek-esque communicators that go in your ear you know i mean in a lot of ways like we're literally like living in the future um for 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 sort of 90s and 80s kids and anyone older like these you know these things are insane and and i think you're being that's the direction of travel is just make making the the apparatus that people are using to consume these things ever more sophisticated and so people are going to use those it's not just going to be stereo mixes, you know, recorded, recorded out of the mixer um, or recorded at front of house down those things anymore. People are, people are eventually going to use the tech, all of the capabilities of the tech. And at the moment, you know, we're at the place where, you know, people can listen, every, almost everyone can listen to surround sound or space, sorry, not surround mm-hmm. sound, like spatial audio. We're being, we're being driven to a place by, by but it's kind of streaming companies in there and and the and the tech available that you know we can we can listen to things in in spatial audio there's going to be something that kind of comes after that and 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 I think the more complicated things get the simply put the more you know the clever people will figure out how to use those things in a creative way and so I don't I don't I really don't think it's sort of fanciful I'm not, I I know it's a, this sort of like black mirror type thing where people are like you're never going to replace clubbing and I don't see clubbing disappearing like anytime soon at any time. There's always going to be a place for it, but what I'm, I'm just sort of positive, I suppose about the, the abilities of, of technology to continually improve to the point where these experiences actually become pleasurable. You know, these sort of metaverse kind of experiences become pleasurable at the moment, you know, VR still seems like this kind of slightly, ridiculous thing of putting on a headset and it makes you feel a bit sick or I, I, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of skepticism about that. I, I still think that we're just at the beginning of that technology. Yeah, absolutely. And and with many of these things, I mean, basically all of this stuff, like it's kind of bubbly under and then there's a tipping point and suddenly it's here. Right. And like the, I always think about the example of esports, 
which was such an esoteric and, you know, just bullshit thing for so long. And then suddenly you look at the statistics and it's like, you know, bigger than the NFL, <laughs> like, you know, and I think that we've, we talked a bit earlier about, you know, the potential for uptake on this kind of Web3 stuff and, and how Web2 developed. And I think you're completely right. There's just an inevitable march of technology, which is which is a point where it just catches on and it just is something and it disrupts whatever it's going to disrupt, you know, that's at a base level. And, and nothing is safe from this. There is nothing in society which is safe from, you know, the automating of jobs to to people going to nightclubs. You know what I mean? This is all, all in the path of it. I was reading something recently. I was reading something recently. Um, it was by the... It's like the, this guy that is one of these kind of Silicon Valley dons who you know, I think he I think he kind of founded Netscape and then was kind of uh, he'd been like heavily involved in the beginnings of the internet and he was kind of talking about crypto and web 3.0 and everything and and the parallels between skepticism about the internet at the beginning of the internet and then whether whether that was like analogous to web 3.0 basically and he he was but the gist of what he was saying, I believe, was that there were very, very like identifiable stages to to kind of the eventual adoption of things. And there's, I can't remember the order, but it's basically kind of there's absolute dismissal. Then there's um, then there's kind of ridicule, and then there's kind of anger, and then there's kind of apt, active kind of sabotage. And if you if you yeah, sort right. of if you you know if you look at crypto at the moment, uh, it is a whole massive can of worms, obviously. But like we're sort of in the like ridicule stroke anger stage about Web three point And I think if you look at things like VR sets, like yeah, we're, I think and metaverse, which is sort of like a linked a linked topic, we're still in the sort of you know ridicule dis- dismissal stroke ridicule stage. But I, I just think it's an almost it's an absolute inevitability that that is going to sort of dictate the future of, of almost everything that we do. And, you know, you saw that with the internet. It was, you know, it seems laughable, the idea that people dismissed the internet. <laughs> you right. know, they just said, oh, this is never going to catch on. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's going to want to do everything in person. This is bullshit, you know. And that just seems so unthinkable now. And I think that, you know, if we're alive to see it, you know, in 30 years or 40 years or whatever, people will be looking back on all of these interrelated things like, you know, Web 3.0, blockchain, metaverse, as, as you know, pre that and post that. And the idea that anybody would have been sceptical about it as, as being sort of idiotic. Yeah, I think you were talking about Mark Andreessen there. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think I, yeah, he's a super interesting guy. Uh, and the, the story that he told, I think we listened to the same podcast, actually, the story that he told, well, actually just listening to him tell the Satoshi Nakamoto story is just crazy to me. And that just in itself is such a, I don't know, I, I just find that extremely affirming. It just gives me hope, you know, that something like that could exist against these seemingly, seemingly um, like inevitable forces of corporatism and, you know, just the, the inexorable advance of money. And that's something that, something like the Satoshi Nakamoto story can exist is just, yeah, it gives me hope. Anyway, man, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for doing it. It's been great. Yeah, great. Absolute pleasure. It's been 
Uh, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, that was George Fitzgerald. And I didn't have any notes at the top of that. And we just kind of went as it went. And we obviously focused a lot on his album career with Domino. But then obviously we get into some pretty uh, futuristic discussion towards the end there, which I thought was really super interesting and really enjoyed having. Um, I think we're in a really interesting time right now, to say the least. Quite a scary time in some ways. But as I said in the conversation, I think the world's going to change in the next 20 years in a way that it didn't change in the last 20 years in certain important respects. And when you're talking about the price of money and inflation, those things have real impact in the real world. I mean, the price of money, like as in interest rates, are just extraordinarily important in the way the world works. So if those are going to go up significantly, then yeah, we're going to be living in a very different way. But anyway, since you're not a patron, you can leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Hit that five-star button. Join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords. If you've got anything to say, got any suggestions, if you've got any contributions to make, if you've got any comments about what we talked about on the show this week, that's the place to do it. And follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes. It contains all the episodes and all the music that we talk about and a bunch of other stuff which gets thrown in there. I usually add like 10 or so tracks a week, mostly the tracks from the person that we've been talking to, but some other stuff too. Anyway, we're done. Thanks for listening. I'll be back here same time, same place for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.